word of the Lord is indeed living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is that word that we come to this morning to sit under its authority and with a prayerful hope that that authority of the word of God will indeed pierce our hearts. Now, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, it's really the Old Testament um, passage to which was referred in Hebrews chapter 4. And um, in light of Thanksgiving holiday and the official or unofficial move into the Christmas season, I wanted to take just a brief break from our study in Galatians and look at this psalm because this psalm really applies broadly to the season that we are in. Um, We'll only have one more week in the book of Galatians for this calendar year. We have um, a guest speaker coming December the 12th, and then Clark and I are going to take a couple weeks around Christmas to look at the, the person and the ministry of Christ. So um, next Sunday, Lord willing, will be our last week in Galatians for the year until January. But for today, Psalm 95. Psalm 95, and it really appears to tie together the ideas of Thanksgiving and Christmas very well. And um, we want to look at this under the title of Joyful Worship of the King. Joyful Worship of the King. Uh, Let's go ahead and read our text, and we'll see, I think, that that topic of joyful worship really screams off the pages of Scripture. So let's read Psalm 95 and then ask the Lord to, to bless the rest of our service today. This is Psalm 95, verse 1. The word of the living God. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, and the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed loathed that generation, and they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, Truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now, and how I pray, how I hope that it is with humble and pure hearts that we come before your throne of grace now. Lord, for if there is any hardness, if there is any sin, if there is any arrogance, any pride in our hearts, I pray, Lord, that you would identify that to us, that you would crush us, that you would grind that sin to dust, 
that you would prepare our hearts to hear from your word and help us to rightly worship you. Lord, we are in great and desperate need of your Holy Spirit to come and empower our hearts and minds to hear and respond to the truth. Lord, for your word indeed is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the joints and the marrow. It pierces to the heart. Lord, would you do that to us with your word today? Pierce us to the heart. Would you give us ears to hear and receive and apply the truth? Would you help us, Lord, not to be stagnant in our walk with Christ, both as individuals and as a corporate body walking and working together? Lord, would you spur us on to good works? Would you ignite in us a spirit and a heart of compassion for the lost? Would you drive us deeper into your word with hearts that long to display the fruit of the spirit and to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for those whom you call as your own? Lord, your scriptures are given to us as instructions as examples your scriptures are given to enlighten our hearts and our minds and to bring us ultimately to repentance that we might grow in godliness so i pray lord that you would accomplish that exact work today lord help us to be fully dependent upon your holy spirit we pray that your spirit would move in power among us Lord, may all we do for the rest of our time together this morning bring you honor and glory and praise. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as many of you know, I have a great fondness for the Christmas season. Um, Since childhood, I've always loved Christmas. Love the lights. I love the songs. I especially love the spirit of happiness and joy that you experience from others. But as believers, we must understand that the spirit of Christmas goes so much deeper than mere sentiment. Likewise, the spirit of thanksgiving goes so much deeper than mere sentimental gratitude for the things we have in this life. For those things, the, the joy we have in Christmas and the gratitude that we think of in thanksgiving must be, if we are in Christ, rooted and grounded and that hope and that life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, I would make the argument that as believers, we really cannot separate Thanksgiving and Christmas. For you cannot celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Messiah, without a heart that overflows with Thanksgiving. Likewise, you have no source of true, genuine thanksgiving if not for Christmas, if not for the coming of the Savior. As believers, thanksgiving and Christmas are inseparably linked. I think we should celebrate Christmas all year, thanksgiving all year, but especially starting November 1st, there's no reason to keep these things separate. You celebrate Christ with a heart of gratitude. 
You, you celebrate your gratitude to the Lord by dwelling upon Christ. So if I know you all well enough, there's somebody in this room now asking, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 95? And the answer is it has everything to do with Psalm 95, because in Psalm 95, we're called to be full of joy, and we're called to be full of hearts of thanksgiving. We're called to worship the Lord properly and rightly. That was the issue with the Israelites, as, as we'll read later this morning in, in Numbers and in Exodus, they had ungrateful hearts. They worshiped in the ways that they saw fit. We, as the people of God, are called to worship Him in specific ways. We're called to worship with a spirit of thanks and a heart of joy. That is what we see. Worship of the Lord is the pinnacle of the Christian life. If we get our worship wrong, we get everything wrong. Because our lives are called and to be given to the Lord as a spiritual service of worship. So we must get worship right. What person who has been delivered from bondage and slavery and from eternal torment and condemnation would respond to their deliverer in any way but a heart overflowing with thanksgiving and joy? Who would read, as we did in the second half of this psalm, of the holy anger and wrath and punishment of the Lord and respond in any way but to tremble with fear and desire to worship the Lord in the way that he commands that we worship. The Lord will not allow us to deal with him in a trifle manner. We must worship in spirit and in truth. And the psalm is full of connections to Christ. When you study the Old Testament, that's one of the first things you must always do with a passage is look and understand how it connects to Christ. Now, I'm not of the opinion that says you make a beeline to Christ in every passage and that's how you preach it. You preach the text as it intends, but all of Scripture points to Christ. So as we consider this, we must consider the connection to Christ. And what is the connection to Christ? It is that those who are in Christ are true worshipers. Those who are not in Christ cannot be true worshipers. You cannot worship and sing for joy and come before his presence with thanksgiving if you are not in Christ. So we must be linked to Christ to be able to live out this psalm. Now to kind of just give you a a little directive, a little roadmap for what we want to consider this morning. Consider this as as a thesis statement for this sermon. We must joyfully and thankfully and reverently worship the Lord who has delivered us from his wrath by making us his children through the work of Christ. We joyfully, thankfully, and reverently worship the Lord because he has a great kingly authority. We worship the Lord because of his shepherding, tender care for us as his sheep. And we worship the Lord, yes, because of his holy anger towards sin. So we're going to break this psalm down really in two points. We want to consider the marks of true worship and the reasons for true worship. The marks of worship 
and the reasons for worship. And we'll kind of just run throughout the psalm. There's not necessarily a clear breakdown of verses 1 through 5 or this and 6 through 11 or this. We'll kind of jump in and out throughout the psalm as we look at these two headings. So firstly, the marks of worship, the marks of worship. And we see those, I think primarily you will gravitate to verses 1 and 2 to see the marks of worship, but there's also a couple important points in the second part of this psalm in verses 6 through 11. So when we speak of worship of the Lord, we must first set some parameters. If we polled the room and asked what is worship, we would come up with several different and likely true answers. So we've got to define our terms before we get started. What is worship? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines worship as showing honor or reverence to a divine being or supernatural power. Okay, that's great. What does Scripture say? In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term that we typically see used as worship simply means to bow down before. To bow down before. In the New Testament, there are a couple terms that would be used as worship, but there's one primary term. It's the word proskuneo. And it means to speak or to give or do homage or to give reverence to a, typically to a higher being. In the New Testament, it speaks of giving reverence to the Lord. So when we speak of worship, we speak in these terms. Worship is the act of showing reverent honor to the Lord. That is what worship is. Worship is not only singing. We don't divide up our, our service to say that what we did before was worship, and now we're coming to the time of preaching. No, this is all worship. All of our lives are worship. Singing is worship. Reading is worship. Praying is worship. The things you do at home throughout the week must be acts of worship. Again, Romans 12, verse 1 says that we give our lives as a living and holy sacrifice and this is our good and acceptable spiritual service of worship to the Lord. Worship encompasses all of your life. So now with that, we ask the question, what are some of the common marks of true worship? Not only do we ask what are some of the common marks, but what does this text of Scripture show are the com common marks of true worship? Um, obviously, if we were to look at this, we would see ideas like joy and singing and thanksgiving. But one thing that we must couch all of that in is the idea that we worship in the truth. And that plays out in the psalm in verses 3 through 5. We see who God is. We worship him in light of the truth of who he is. When we say that we must worship in the truth, we mean that we worship because of the revealed truth of who God is and what he has done for us, yes. But when we say we worship in truth, we also mean that we worship according to the truth. That is, we worship as God has called us to worship him. And so that's what we want to consider in this first heading, the marks of worship. The, the idea of worshiping according to the truth, according to the truth of how God commands us to worship. In verses 3 through 5, we see God's authority over all things. If God has authority over all things, that means he has the authority to command how we worship. 
And the Lord does indeed command us to specific ways of worship. If you want to turn with me, let's go to Leviticus chapter 10. This will be fairly familiar, the story to to many of you. Leviticus chapter 10, and it's the story of the, the priests Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Leviticus chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron, therefore, kept silent. So, so these men, the sons of Aaron, they came and offered strange fire, a strange offering, a strange form of worship to the Lord, and the Lord consumed them because the Lord said, before all people, I will be treated as holy. I will be treated as the exalted God who is above all things, and I will tell you how you will worship. Jeremiah Johnson from Grace to You wrote about this story. He said, the point is clear. God will not be mocked or trifled with, especially when it comes to careless, perverse, and false worship. Now, those terms are all important, careless, perverse, and false worship. We don't want to do any of those things. And I think we oftentimes can quickly understand what perverse and false worship might look like. There is much perverse and false worship in our day. But for those of us who have a more conservative, uh, biblical, scriptural bent, we must also consider this idea of being careless in our worship. We must consider the idea of not necessarily doing what is not commanded, but, but not doing what is commanded. We must guard both the doctrine and the form of our worship. We must ensure that our doctrine is always true and our practice is always as prescribed in Scripture. That means that not only do we not do what the Lord says not to do, but we do only what He has commanded. That's why you don't see dramas and plays up on this stage because nowhere in Scripture does God command those things. God commands that that we come with joyful singing, that we come before Him with reverent praying. He commands that we worship with cheerful giving. We worship by preaching and teaching the truth of God's Word. We worship with genuine fellowship, and we worship by rightly practicing the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that the Lord has given to the church. That is what God has prescribed. That is what we must practice. That is what it means to worship in truth, to worship according to the truth. 
And that's how we want to be marked. We don't want to end up like Nadab and Abihu. Or like the man Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6, who walking by the ark of the Lord, he, the, the ark started to tip over as the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reaches up and touches the ark to stabilize it. And the Lord strikes him dead because Uzzah was not told to touch the ark. They were not really even to be moving the ark as they were. And Uzzah, in a desire to serve the Lord, stabilized the ark. But the Lord said, I do not accept that as an act of worship and struck the man dead. We must worship according to the truth. So now we continue on. There's other marks of, of worship in this psalm, and so we want to consider those. The, the next mark that really just jumps off the pages is, is the mark and the idea of worshiping joyfully or, or gladly. Again, consider verses 1 and 2. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. We, we examined this last week, the idea of being joyful as a fruit of the Spirit. This is an outworking of the Spirit of God living in God's people, that we are full of joy. We, we are marked by an abiding happiness and joy, not because life is easy, but because we have Christ. So let's consider now this concept of joy as it applies to our worship. And specifically, I think the text would lend us to, to thinking about this concept as it applies to our singing. Let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully. Let us shout joyfully to the Lord with psalms. Psalms is a, a Hebrew word that refers to singing with instruments. Scripture commands that we sing with instruments. That's why we sing with instruments, because that's what the Scripture says to do. And we do so joyfully. Psalm 47, verse 1, says that we shout to God with a voice of joy. Psalm 92 says, I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. We sing and shout joyfully to the word as an act of worship. So ask yourself this simple question. Is my singing marked with joy? Would my singing be described as joyful? Scripture speaks of playing music skillfully. And, and certainly, as we come before the Lord, we want to sing and play our best. But Scripture doesn't tell us that our singing has to be perfect, on pitch and on key and on time. What Scripture says is that our singing must be joyful. Joy marks every aspect of worship and life. I think we could go as far as to say that joy and worship in this form in our singing should affect our countenance, it should affect our attention, and it should even affect the volume at which we sing. When we sing praises to the Lord, can somebody look at you from the volume at which you sing, from the look on your face, or from the attention and devotion of mind that you're giving to what we're singing, and say, that person is full of the joy of the Lord. Joy should mark all that we do. How many of you, when, 
watching your favorite football team play and, and you see a big play, how many of you whisper with a frown on your face as you cheer on your team? The answer, of course, if we're being honest, is none of us. How many of you, when your child or, or your grandchild took those first steps, sat there with a sullen look on your face and did not say a word? When we're full of joy, it comes out in our expressions. We must worship with self-control and with a sober spirit, but that does not mean that we cannot be exuberant and joyful. We must hold those in that healthy tension and balance. So joy marks worship. Another mark of worship that's so clear in this psalm is that spirit of thanksgiving. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Calvin said that this type of language should increase our zeal in worship. Notice what the psalmist says here. Let us come before the Lord's presence with thanksgiving. Let us come before the throne of the Most High with thanksgiving. Let us come before him because we have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let us come before the throne with confidence and with boldness because we have a great high priest. And let us come with thanksgiving. This term could even really be rendered a song of thanksgiving, a song recounting to the Lord the great blessings that are ours in Christ. Do you sing songs of thanksgiving? Are songs of thanksgiving filling your heart and mind at all times? John Flavel, the, the old Puritan, said, I ran across this quote this week. He said, He that gives no thanks for one mercy has little ground to expect another. If you don't give thanks for today's mercies, how might you expect tomorrow's mercies? Now, we know the Lord's mercies are new every morning, and we thank Him for that great grace. But, but how we must give thanks to the Lord for His mercies, how we ought not, not assume His mercies and His graces and His faithfulness, but rather overflow with thanksgiving to the Lord because of his goodness to us. Consider the great gift of Christ. What greater cause do you have to make haste, to go quickly, as, as this language would, would put it, to go quickly and make haste to the presence of the Lord with a song of thanksgiving? Go to the Lord with a grateful, thankful heart. Putting these things together, is your worship marked by joyful thanksgiving to the Lord? It should be, because that's what Scripture tells us. In verse 6, we see another mark of worship. Worship should be marked by reverence. By reverence. Verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our maker. This is a helpful balance to the ideas that we've talked of, of joy, of exuberance and gladness, because we come to the Lord with that joy, but we also come with this marked reverence, knowing that we come before the great king of the universe. We're not going to a fellow man in worship. 
we're coming before the throne of a holy God who has countless angels worshiping him at all times for all eternity. Therefore, we come with reverence. We come with trembling. We come with sober minds and fearful hearts because God is holy and he will be treated as holy by those who worship him. Now, we say all that, and Mike read for us Hebrews chapter 4 earlier, and you've probably seen now there's a tie-in with Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 in this psalm. The author of Hebrews was pointing back to Psalm 95 throughout the third and fourth chapters of Hebrews. So we have this idea of reverence. We come with sober minds and fearful hearts, but what does Hebrews 4 end with? I think I've already quoted it, Hebrews 4, 16 says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We come before the Lord's throne of grace with confidence because of our great high priest, the one who withstood temptation, who stood, as Paul Washer would describe, as a broad shoulder and strong-backed man withstanding temptation, bearing the weight of sin, being crushed under it, and now he died, he has risen again, he has ascended to glory, and he sits at the right hand of the Most High as your great high priest. He sits there making intercession for you before the Father. So you come with a reverent heart because God is holy, but you come with confidence because you come as one washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Come with reverence, come with humility, but come with confidence, come with joy, come with thanksgiving. There's one more mark of worship that we want to consider in this text. It comes kind of from from verse 8 in in that second section, and it's that idea that we must not come with hard hearts. The opposite of that, then, is that we must come with submissive hearts. One of the marks of worship is submission. Verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. If you hear the Lord's voice, do not come to him with a hard heart. Come as, as Calvin would describe with a meek and pliable heart, a, a gentle submission to the Lord. We must come with submissive hearts. Consider Israel. You know, as you read through the Old Testament, it's, it's remarkable to consider the the Jewish people, how stubborn, how ignorant, and how hard-hearted they were, how they were not submissive to the Lord in their lives or in their worship. They were described as being callous and rebellious before the Lord. And why is that? Why were they described as rebellious? It's because they chose to worship and to live according to their own way, their own plan, and their own knowledge. So how should we come before the Lord if we want to be submissive, if we want to be the opposite of that hard-hearted old Israelite person? Consider Psalm 103, well-known psalm. It begins there, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget... None of his benefits. 
you have trouble submitting to the Lord, perhaps you have forgotten his benefits. Perhaps you have forgotten his mercy and his grace towards you. We'll, we'll go in depth on this idea of Meribah and Massa in just a few minutes, but what had Israel done there for the Lord to respond in such anger? They had forgot his mercy. They had forgot the Lord's kindness. They had forgotten the Lord's provision. And what did that ingratitude yield in their hearts? It yielded pride, unsubmissiveness. It yielded hard-hearted and false worship. Dear friends, we do not want to come before a holy God with those types of hearts. We should be marked by a submissive and joyful heart. We should worship in the truth. We must worship with joy, with thankful and remembering hearts. We must worship with reverence, and we must worship with humility and submission. So that's the first heading, the marks of worship. Now we'll try to run through this a little bit quicker and consider the reasons for worship. We've seen the marks of worship. Now what about the reasons for worship? Why do we worship the Lord like this? Consider firstly verses 3 through 5. For the Lord, for Yahweh, the great I am, is a great God. He's a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. This concept boils down to the fact that we worship God because he is great and he is powerful, and he is sovereign, and he is the creator, and he is over all things. Why do we worship God? Why would you worship anyone else? Why would you worship anything that your mind can conceive or, or bring to, to your imagination when we have the revealed word of God about who he is? The God of the Bible is glorious, and he is worthy of worship. So why do we worship God? Because he commands that we worship and because he is worthy of our worship. William Plumer, the, uh, an old, um, I think, 19th century pastor and theologian, wrote that our worship should be the most elevated kind of worship to correspond with the character of the being that we worship. We should worship God in high-minded ways because that elevation of worship shows the great God that we worship. We, we don't only worship in simple truths because God is so much greater than a simple God. He is great. He is almighty. He is the creator. We worship him in all those things. We worship the Lord with fervent, reverent hearts because that is the only kind of worship that is fitting the king of kings. And there's a second distinct reason that we worship the Lord, and it's seen in the first part of verse 7. Verse 7, it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So consider the imagery here of the Lord as our shepherd. The Lord as our shelter, our caretaker, our provider, and we being his people, we being his sheep. 
The, the Lord's relationship to us is one of tender care and concern. Now, sheep, real-life sheep, if you've ever dealt with a sheep or if you've ever seen these really, really funny videos of sheep online, you understand that sheep are dumb animals. Sheep are, are defenseless animals. And we, when left to our own devices, are not much different in comparison to the Lord. We are helpless, we are hopeless, and quite frankly, we are worthless before God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his steadfast love, he placed his love and affection and saving grace upon us before the foundation of time. He predestined us to the adoption of sons. He redeemed us through the precious blood of Christ. He calls us his children, and we are now his sheep. What other reason do we need to worship God? You have nothing to offer him, and yet he loves you. He cares for you. He calls you his own. He provides for your needs. He provided for your ultimate need, the ultimate need of your soul, by calling you to life in Christ. This is undeserved and unmerited mercy and compassion, and this is why we worship God. Now, I hope you caught something um, interesting, and there's a point that we can make um, in in verse 7. It almost seems like this illustration is backwards when you read. It says, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You you would really consider that to be said the other way. We are the people of his hand and the sheep of his pasture. But that's not what scripture says. And so we ask the question, why is it said like this? And after a good bit of digging, I can tell you, I don't think we know. There's not a whole lot of insight into why we have this kind of backwards illustration, but John Calvin made a very helpful and important point about this. He said the object was less about the elegancy of expression than it was to press upon the people the sense of inestimable favor conferred upon them in their adoption by the virtue of which they are called sons and daughters of God. This is not necessarily about elegance of speech. It's about showing you the great grace of God, that you are his people, that we are his sheep, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that we are adopted, and we have an incalculable favor and gift and grace given to us in Christ. So friends, let's consider the Lord's kind provision for us, the care and the defense, the feeding, the leading, the sheltering, and on and on. And let's worship him. Let's thank him. And let's praise him, for he is good to us as his people. Now, there's a final reason that we should worship the Lord in this text, and it's seen really in verses 8 through 11. And while we're not quite at our conclusion yet, this will be really the last point in which we dig in today. We see that we worship the Lord rightly because of his anger and his wrath and his response to sin. Today, the text says at the end of verse 7, today if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, the Lord is speaking here, he says, they tried me though they had seen my work. 
For 40 years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall never enter my rest. Now this is in the context of worship. This was the Lord's response when the people did not rightly worship and revere him. So to see these Old Testament stories, we'll read them quickly and, and just get a glimpse of this. You can turn back with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. And then we'll also consider some verses in Numbers chapter 14. It ties in to, to these ideas of Meribah and Massa. So Exodus 17, first, we'll read verses 1 through 7 to see the hardness of heart of the people of Israel. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why have you now brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the walk, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord not among us? Now, that's kind of some of the backstory to Psalm 95. The, the people quarreled with Moses, and they tested the Lord because they wanted water to drink. They disregarded and forgot the provision of the Lord. Now turn also with me to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, and, and here's a story of the people rebelling against the Lord. Uh, again, a common occurrence with the people of Israel. They were people of hard and ignorant heart. Read um, verses 11 and 12, and then we'll drop down to verse 19. Numbers 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. The Lord was going to smite these people and raise up Moses into a great nation. But Moses went to the Lord and begged the Lord for mercy towards these people. Verse 19 is kind of the end of that. He says, Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Lord, you have shown loving kindness. Continue to show these people grace. 
Moses prayed. Verse 20, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, they shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. This is the Lord's response to hard-hearted people and hard-hearted worship. He said that these people will not enter into his rest. They will not be allowed to enter into the promised land because they did not rightly worship and revere the Lord. The Lord is not to be trifled with, nor is he to be questioned or to be treated with contempt. But rather, he must be treated as holy. We worship the Lord in truth because he is holy and just and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We worship the Lord because he is a holy God and his cup is full of wrath, ready to be poured out on those who will not come to Christ for salvation. We, dear friends, like Israel... Like God's people have seen the Lord's hand at work. We have seen his faithful provision. We have experienced his kindness and his goodness. So may we then understand that we must come before him with trembling. Come before him with reverence. We must come before him with humility and with thanksgiving and with joy. The Lord commands that we worship him. The Lord commands that we worship him, and we will all one day worship him. The question is, will you worship in the truth because you are in Christ, or will you worship because you are judged and your legs are cut off and you're driven to your knees by the holy God? Philippians 2, verse 10, 11 says, the name, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. They will all confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will all be given in this sense to glorify God, whether in salvation or in judgment. What remains then is whether or not we choose to worship the Lord today in salvation or in judgment. Do we worship Him as those who are in Christ who are forgiven of our sins? And if we do, we worship Him in the truth and with joy and with thanksgiving with all these things that we have seen today. Or we worship Him as those who are not in Christ and who will be cut down, will fall to our knees and cry out, Glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Though his blood is not for me, may he be glorified in exercising wrath against me and my sin. So do you worship the Lord as Savior, or will you be forced to worship him as your judge? 
We end in where we began. We must worship with joyful and thankful hearts. We worship him in the truth. We worship him because he ransomed and redeemed us from the power of sin and Satan. We worship him, dear friends, because he is worthy of all worship and honor and glory and praise. As we walk through the remainder of the holiday season, friends, let's consider these truths. Let's consider this call to worship the Lord with thanksgiving and with joy. But let's not give in to this commercialized view of the holidays and forget that we worship in the truth. We worship not a babe in a manger, but a Savior who has condescended to save His people. Friends, I encourage you to make time to worship as the Lord commands. We have all these reminders for the next month or so around you of the incarnation of Christ. Christ came that he might save sinners. So when you see these reminders, worship the Lord. Worship him with joy and with thanksgiving because he has saved you. Worship him privately by yourself. Worship him with your family and with your loved ones as you're gathered over the holidays. Worship the Lord surely as a gathered body when the church gathers to worship. This is, in many ways, the easiest time of year to be full of joy and full of worship because the reminders are ever, ever present. So may we worship the Lord as he deserves. Revelation 4, 11, the elders cried out, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of you, they existed and were created. In Revelation 5, verse 12, there were myriads of angels and all the living creatures and the elders, and they all cried out, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is he to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May we have hearts that cry out that same thing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. May we rise as true worshipers to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you now and what a weighty thing it is to consider 